Hello out there and welcome to the Fantasy World Order Fantasy Baseball Podcast. My name is Pat Donovan, flying solo tonight, and I'm bringing you my all-sleeper team. Before I get started with the players, let me lay out for you the parameters that I use to assemble this list. I've got four players with an ADP of at least 250, five players with an ADP of at least 300, five players with an ADP of at least 350, and four players with an ADP of at least 400. We'll note, of course, that there is no player on here that is considered a top prospect. That is deliberate. I am trying to identify veteran players um, who I believe their value will ultimately exceed their draft position, and they will not be hot commodities on draft day because they are veterans. And the positions they will occupy are catcher, first base, second base, third base, shortstop, outfield, 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 corner infield, middle infield, and utility among the hitters. And with the pitchers, there will be five starting pitchers and two relief pitchers. These are Fantrax ADPs. They are as of a day ago, so they might have fluctuated a little bit, but they should still be in line. So, without any further ado, let's move to the catcher position. And the catcher that I selected is James McCann with an ADP of 315 from the Detroit Tigers. I opted to focus on him in part because we didn't focus or discuss him during our catcher preview. McCann is 27 years old. He's the unquestioned catcher in Detroit. He's got 1,200 plate appearances under his belt and has demonstrated some clear, clear improvement over that time. He's got an increasing walk rate, a decreasing K rate, and a line drive rate that spiked up to 28.2% last year. And he also demonstrated significant contact improvement. I think he could be a sneaky breakout candidate. The cupboard is bare in Detroit. I'm expecting him to hit higher in the order, possibly fifth or sixth, after spending the majority of 2017 hitting eighth, seventh or eighth. With Miguel Cabrera and Nick Castellanos in front of him, I think he could be a sneaky RBI source, as well as hit for pretty decent power. So if you're going to hang around in your 15-team league and it's a one-catcher league, this might be your guy because he's going to get a significant amount of playing time. He's he's already demonstrated the ability to hit for teens' power, and he's also demonstrated the ability not to kill you in batting average. Hitting behind those two players, there's the chance that he could sneak in 70 RBIs 15 homers, and bat around 260, 270, which would be a significant profit at the price that you're looking at him at. Moving to first base, I selected Brandon Belt, who, I mean, time and time again has shown up as a either a breakout candidate or a sleeper. This year, his ADP is at 303. I've always been a fan of Belt, and truly believe that in a more hitter-friendly environment, he would be somewhere between a top 50 to top 100 fantasy asset. Last year, if you took his spray chart and put it to a neutral park for left-handed power, which was which for me was Oakland when I looked at the park factors, which we all know is not a spectacular park for, for, for hitters, Belt added, would have added seven homers to his total. He would have jumped from 18... To 25, and remember he missed time last year. So, if if you take what he did in San Francisco, and would have applied it to a park that was more neutral, it probably would have resulted in a pretty impressive season. Not only does San Francisco hurt his power output, but he also had problems with health, obviously because he missed time, and his Babbitt. But the Babbitt, he's a career 333 Babbitt guy. Last year, it was at 284. He's got a fly ball profile, and that's that's fairly new. So that's going to push the Babbitt below his career average. But in terms of the amount of quality contact he makes, I think a 310 or even a 300 Babbitt is much more reasonable. And that would push Belt into a 270, 280 batting average as opposed to the 
mid 240s he sat at last year. And if you put a 270 average with a 380 OBP, which is what he would have based upon his walk rate, and then you give him those extra home runs over the course of a full season, you're looking at a guy with 27 homers. 270, 380 OBP, 27 homers in a lineup that's going to improve and has improved. Belt's starting to look like a real bargain as a post-300 pick. The other end of the spectrum for Belt is his health. He had a concussion. He was cleared back in October. Uh, That makes me think that perhaps they just didn't want to try to play him late in the year when they were suffering through what was a completely miserable season. Once he was hurt, he was done. I'm hoping that's it because he does have a history of injuries and concussions. It's That's a little iffy, but again, his ADP is 303. So your opportunity cost is minimal. And this is a player with upside that probably falls between what Andrew McCutcheon did last year, who was the 37th overall batter on the ESPN Player Raider, and Eddie Rosario, who was the 48th batter on the ESPN Player Raider. He doesn't even have to give you that kind of value for this pick to turn a profit at 303. And I will add that in certain formats, he probably has outfield eligibility. So you've got a little bit of versatility in terms of how you can use him. At second base, I really like Neil Walker at 383. Like most free agents this year, as we all know, Walker's market has been slow to develop. That plus a productive history, but a somewhat boring productive history from a fantasy perspective, and a long injury ledger have him on the brink of irrelevance in terms of his fantasy stock. That shouldn't be the case. Walker's made real gains over the last two years. He's raised his walk rate from 7.3% in 2015 all the way to 12.3% last year. Over the last two years, while maintaining a healthy line drive rate, he's converted some of his ground balls into fly balls, which, as we know, is good for power. Last year, prior to giving way to a hamstring injury in just over 50 games, Walker had nine homers and was triple slashing 270, 358, 468. After returning from the hamstring injury, and despite being traded to homer-happy Milwaukee, Walker slugged just five homers, saw his strikeout rate jump 7%, and triple slashed just 258, 376, 399. I mean, it's pretty clear that there's a line of demarcation in his, in his season. He was excellent before uh, going down with the hamstring injury. He returned and he was never the same. Uh, chances are he was never fully healthy. Now, that is a concern when it comes to Walker, much like it was when it came to Bell. And it's going to be with others on this list. But there's zero opportunity cost here. You can get a middle infielder with this pick that's going to hit 270 with 25 homer pop and probably provide a pretty good total in either runs or RBIs, depending on where he hits in the lineup. So, I, I, to me, I, he's almost a 400 He's almost at 400 in terms of his ADP. Uh, There's a significant profit to be had there. Uh, This next player at third base is a little bit further up in terms of his ADP. It's Mike Alfranco at 255.05. And I'm going back to the well again when it comes to Franco. Last year, I thought the market was way too high on him. My rationale was simple. The Babbitt wasn't due to progress like people thought it was, because the quality of the contact was poor. He's a player that tended to pull his ground balls and hit his fly balls to the opposite field. And that's bad for Babbitt. The quality of the contact didn't change last year, so that's not what has me excited. He hasn't made the adjustment yet. But now he's at a severely reduced price, and I think the upside is worth taking a gamble on because... This is a player with legitimate 25-30 homer power uh, with a strikeout rate that's not gone above 20%. So if he makes the changes that he needs to make, he's going to 
really produce. Uh, he's going to produce a good average, and he's going to produce good power. And that's the combination that you really want. Um, he's got a slugger's power with the K rate of a hitter that should hit 280. And now he's got Carlos Santana on a team, uh, on the team with him. You've got Reese Hoskins, who came up at the end of the year last year. I'm hoping that one of those guys can get in his ear and tell him, listen, you when you put the ball in the air, you've got to pull it. And if that makes an impression upon him, suddenly you've struck gold in terms of a player you've gotten at 255. And the other factor here is that he's a player that for most of his tenure has been the featured hitter in the lineup. Now with Hoskins there and with Santana there, he's not. And maybe some of his struggles have to do with the fact that he couldn't handle the pressure of being the guy. And I know that this is intangible sort of things. This isn't analytical, but I, I think these things exist. So he's, he's got some guys in the lineup that can help him out, take the pressure off, and maybe point him in the correct direction in terms of how he needs to hit the ball. At 255, even if he doesn't, your opportunity cost, again, is almost zero in a 12-team mixed league. In a 15-team mixed league, it's a little bit more of an investment, but still, you can find somebody to take Michael Franco's place if he does not turn it around. Okay, shortstop. Uh, this is another one of my higher-end assets. Uh, Marcus Simeon, 255.58. I've long been a fan of, of this player. And I think last year was a potential breakout season that was interrupted by injury. Um, in 85 games, he had 10 homers, 12 steals, 53 runs. That's pretty close to a 2020 90-run clip. The play discipline is solid. He has a walk rate near 10%. He's got a K rate around 22%. Not great, but not something that caps his batting average in, in any sort of meaningful way. In his age 27 season this year, I could foresee that 20-20-90 run pace becoming a reality. This is a lineup that's improved. They've added Stephen Piscotty. They've added Matt Olson. They added Matt Olson in the second half of last year. They added Matt Chapman in the second half of last year. Last year, in a season where Chris Taylor had 21 homers and 17 steals and scored 85 runs, he finished as the number four overall shortstop. I don't think Simeon is going to approach the 75 RBIs that Taylor had, and I don't think he's going to approach the 288 average, but... The numbers that we talked about, that 2020-90 should be sufficient to place him inside the top 12 at the position, despite being drafted as the 25th overall shortstop eligible player in 10-game formats and 20th overall on fan tracks. This is a player that's going to hit leadoff for an underrated lineup. He's got the ability to get on base, and he is a very efficient base stealer when he is on. So I don't really see much downside here. I think that Simeon is being drafted pretty much at his downside at 255, which is a decent middle infield prospect. But this guy could easily turn into a starting caliber shortstop this year in fantasy baseball. Okay, Yonder Alonso uh, with an ADP of 356. Now this is a player that we addressed during our uh, off-season rundown. I don't have much to add to what's been previously said. He made a swing change. He saw a huge boost to his production. And now he takes those changes and moves to a more favorable park and a better lineup. Last year, he was in Oakland for most of the year and then moved to Seattle. Now he goes to Cleveland with Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez, Michael Brantley, Edwin Encarnacion, Jason Kipnis, this lineup is loaded, so he's either going to hit at the back of that group and drive in a bunch of runs, or he's going to be smack in the middle, and he's going to produce 
pretty good totals, both in runs and RBIs. There is no reason he should be going this late, other than the fact that maybe his ADP was down because he was a free agent. But even then, this is a guy that can produce, I want to say, you know, high 20s homers, close to 30, and probably 165 to 170 in terms of his runs and RBIs combined. So uh, right here, he is a significant, significant value. Okay, Cattell Marte, uh, middle infield, 326 is his ADP. It's unclear what role Marte will have at this time, whether it's starting at shortstop or elsewhere. He's got outfield experience, might be able to play second base. Uh, This is a team that's got a lot of pieces that they can move around. Uh, Chris Owings, Brendan Drury, uh, Yasmani Tomas, they're competitive enough that they might sign somebody. But Marte was starting in the playoff games, and he was productive in those games. So I think he's got the inside track. Marte, you might remember, was a piece that was in the Segura, Hanniger, Taiwan Walker trade. And last year, he lost out and started the year at AAA. He's only 24, which seems bizarre to me, uh, because... He came up two or three years ago, and usually in your mind, you're thinking that that player should be 26, 27, 28. No, he's just turned 24. And he showed some pop. Five homers over 255. Not crazy, but enough that he wouldn't be a zero if you stretch that out to a full season. And he also showed play discipline, which he has shown in the minor leagues before. He had a 10% walk rate and just a 14% K rate. Between AAA and the majors, Marte had 11 homers and 10 steals. That might seem a little boring. Um, You would like to see the speed a little higher. But I believe there is more speed there. And the lack of speed production at the MLB level had to do with where he was situated in the batting order. He was primarily batting with the Diamondbacks 7th, 8th, or ninth. He has... 28 and 29 steal seasons in his past uh, at, at the lower levels of the minor leagues. With full-time at-bats and a role near the top of the lineup, on a team that likes to run, Diamondbacks were top 10 in stolen base attempts last year. Marte could easily swipe 20-plus bags. Pair that potential with the likely improvement in batting average. His Babbitt was only 290 last year. That's low for somebody with his athleticism. He's got good on-base skills, and and now a non-zero power profile. And it wasn't a fluke. The fly ball percentage was up. His pull fly ball percentage was up. The hard contact on fly ball percentage was up. You're looking at a player that could go something around 10 to 12 homers, 20 to 25 steals, with a 270 batting average and a 370 OBP, hitting at the top of what is a very good lineup. And this is a shortstop eligible player. In terms of 12-team mixed leagues, this might be the guy that you want to grab if you miss out on Simeon. Because your replacement level is going equal a lot of the back half shortstops in the league. And if you hit on this guy, he can pretty much be what Eduardo Nunez was last year. Well, not quite what Eduardo Nunez was last year, but... What Eduardo Nunez will probably be this year, which is 280, 270, 10 homers, 25 steals. All right, so we're going to move to the outfield now. Uh, My first outfielder is Jackie Bradley Jr. with an ADP of 278. After an impressive season and a half, Bradley bottomed out last year as the Boston lineup simply wasn't as good and he suffered from a end-of-the-year slump. Bradley suffered a thumb sprain in August and rushed back and then slashed 172, 238, and 280 in September while hitting 64% ground balls. That's not a winning profile. There have been rumors all offseason that have speculated that Boston's going to bring in J.D. Martinez and then potentially ship out Bradley with either Betts or Benintendi shifting over the center. 
This might be the best thing that could happen to Bradley's fantasy value, because it would provide him with the opportunity to hit in a better lineup position. Approximately 7 eighths of Bradley's at-bats have come at 6th or later in the Red Sox batting order. True talent-wise, Bradley is probably a 265 hitter with a 350 OBP, which is good enough to lead off for some teams. See the, see the San Francisco Giants, who rolled out to Nard Span with a 272 average and a 329 OBP. See the Cincinnati Reds, who rolled out Billy Hamilton and a 260 average and a 320 OBP. If Bradley manages to p- play a more prominent role in terms of offense, he could finally capitalize on his athleticism, which has resulted in very efficient base stealing. In his career, he is 30 for 35 on stolen base attempts. I could easily see him as a 15 to 20 steal player if he's given the green light by a manager. And now we're looking at a player that's 20 homers, 15 steals, 265 average, 350 OBP with some sort of run production if he's hitting in the middle or at the top of a lineup. That sounds an awful lot like the number 64 hitter from last year, Shin Su Chu, without the age risk. And by the way, Chu is also severely underdrafted as someone who's going to hit near the top of the Texas lineup. But I digress. All right, and that brings me to the player that I've identified as my favorite deep sleeper this year. And it's Mikey Matuk. Uh, 398 ADP from the Detroit Tigers. At first glance, and even at second glance, Matuk is unremarkable. He's 28 years old. He received his first real playing time shot last year. 12 homers, 6 steals. Big deal. There's nothing spectacular there. But as of this moment, Matuk looks to be the leadoff hitter for a lineup that contains Miguel Cabrera and Nick Castellanos. That's a good thing. And in the second half last year, where he actually received his first real consistent playing time, Matuk looked like a player that belongs. In 239 plate appearances, he had eight homers. He was five for five on steals. He walked at an 8.4% clip and struck out just 19.7% of the time, producing a 283, 356, 486 triple slash. Now, his hard contact rate was at 38%, but Detroit apparently, their their guns in terms of the way they measure uh, batted ball velocity, uh, it seems to favor the hitters quite a bit. So I don't even want to dwell on that. But he doesn't even need that boost that Detroit might give him in terms of hard contact rate. His homer-to-fly ball rate was 13.3%. That matches his career mark, which was 13.5%. And that's from a 690-plate appearance sample, which includes two other MLB stints in Tampa Bay, which isn't the most hitter-friendly park. So I, I I think we can safely say at this point, Matuk is a legitimate 15 to 20 homer bat. And the improvements in terms of his K rate are underscored by his contact profile. He cut his swinging strike rate to 8.1%, and he swung less often and jumped his contact percentage up to 81.3%. That, that, that's a big jump, and we're looking at a player that's eliminated a strikeout problem here. The 5-for-5 on steals in the second half should jump out, just like when we discussed Jackie Bradley. Uh, That's a player that was highly efficient last year at stealing bases. And Matuk is a player that has 19, 25, and 18 steal seasons during his minor league stay. Speed isn't just supported by the minor league swipes because, I mean, sometimes players have a big history of stolen bases in the minors, And it's mostly related to the fact that minor league pitchers can't keep hitters on base or the catcher that's catching doesn't have a strong enough arm or is still working on their defense and can't position themselves 
properly to throw somebody out. Took has a really good infield hit rate. Um, he had a 14.4% mark last year, and his career mark is 13.9%. So it's a it's a skill that he's shown over the course of nearly 700 plate appearances. And that's a really good sign for uh, not only steals, because it shows that he's fast and quick getting down the line, but also for his Babbitt. It, it means that he's going to be able to get some of those quote-unquote cheap hits, and that will keep his batting average afloat. Um, or, or, or on the higher end, because again, this is a guy that's improved his K rate. Um, his infield hit rate was fourth best in baseball. And some of the names that were around him, Delano De Shields was in front of him, the 16.7% infield hit rate. He had 29 steals last year. Two names behind him, Byron Buxton, 13.9%, 29 steals. Michael Taylor, 13.5%. 25 steals. That's good company. And that's good stolen base company. And as a further point about his stolen base capabilities, the Tigers have switched managers. Rod Gardenhire has been brought in. And Gardenhire, in seven of his last eight seasons with the Twins, they finished top 10 in stolen base attempts. So you have a manager that likes to run. He was never near the top, but he's going to allow his leadoff hitter to run, especially when the leadoff hitter has shown the athleticism that Matuk has. So in a year where everyone seems to be chasing speed and and valuing players with the ability that can hit, you know, 15, 20 homers and steal 15, 20 bases and hit 280, this is a player that's available at nearly pick 400 that could put together a 2020 season with a good batting average and score a good amount of runs because, again, Miguel Cabrera and Nicholas Castellanos are hitting behind him. So that's that's the kind of thing you want. And in a year where Miguel Cabrera was terrible, Ian Kinsler, with a 313 OBP, Scored 90 runs. So it is not unreasonable to think that Mikey Matuk could put up a 90-run season with good power, good speed, and good average. This is this is my guy, and I am going to own him everywhere as long as the price does not get out of hand. He's got the profile of somebody that's easily a top 150 bat if everything that happened last year is real. And every single time you look at what he did, there's a reason to believe in it. So I'm in. I highly recommend him. I think that he is the perfect guy in a deep league to take late and, you know, give six weeks, eight weeks to, and see if he can grasp that, leadoff job or that number two hitter job and run with it because he looks very for real to me. Okay, and for my next outfielder, my final outfielder, and people that listened to us last year are going to roll their eyes because this was a guy I was on last year um, and he's even going later than Mikey Matuk. It is Charlie Tilson at 484. I was touting Tilson last year among a trio of deep sleepers, with the other two being Mitch Hanniger and Matt Joyce. I thought Tilson would be a cheap source of batting average, decent on base skills, runs, and stolen bases, of course. Uh, unfortunately, his season never got off the ground. Following ankle and foot injuries in the spring, uh, he never played a, a major league game, actually. Um, he did appear in some fall league games, so I hope you had him in your fall league fantasy lineup. But, I mean, he shook off the rust. He's expected to compete for the White Sox center field job this year in spring training and potentially be their leadoff hitter. Uh, So we're back where we started last year. So if Tilson does manage to get both jobs, and it's completely possible that he does, he could be a value. Uh, His profile reminds me a lot of Ender Inciarte from a few years ago. 
I think you can expect a batting average around 285 uh, with mid to high single digit homers because the ballpark is favorable for power. Uh, you know, if he was in a, you know, a, a big ballpark, I would turn around and say, yeah, you, you're looking at a stretch to get five homers. But in, uh, I want to call it U.S. Cellular, oh, Guaranteed Rate is the name of the ballpark. In that ballpark, I, I think that he can maybe even approach 10 in a good year. But I, I think, I feel safe projecting him for seven. Do you mix that with, you know, a, a spot at the top of the lineup, as I said, behind, uh, or excuse me, in front of Moncada, Abreu, Avisil, and Wellington Castillo. Those players should make for a nice run total for the player that's going to hit leadoff, even if the bottom of the lineup is unlikely to present RBI opportunities. As for running, you know, you're going to have to listen to spring training reports. You're going to have to watch some games with Tilson, see if he swipes a few bags, see if he looks good on the bases uh, before you pencil him in for a 25-30 steal season. But let's also keep in mind the White Sox are not a good team. And this is something that I've preached and I will continue to preach. Usually, bad teams like to run. So if he's in a position where the White Sox, you know, is advantageous for them to run to try to create some offense, he's going to go. So, I mean, we're looking upside, 285, 290 hitter, six homers, seven homers, 25 to 30 stolen bases with 85 to 90 runs. That's going to have value. That's the kind of player that people would chase. He's a player that could produce that kind of season at nearly at, at nearly pick 500. So he's free and you can bank if he looks good in spring training with that caveat. Uh, you can bank 25 to 30 steals here and not suffer anywhere else. This isn't, you know, Michael Taylor uh, who's going to hit 220. So, I, I mean, this is a this is a pretty good player who's had some rough luck. I would, I would be willing to draft him again. And okay, my final hitter before we move on to pitching, player I put at utility, Scott Shebler, with an ADP of 318. Shebler had a really nice year last year. He had 30 bombs with a handful of steals. Um, the batting average betrayed him. Uh, he was only two, he only hit 233, but that was mostly because of a BABIP that was at 248. Because the strikeout rate isn't prohibitive, it's 23.5 percent. You'd like to see it a little bit lower, but it's not, you know, 30, 35 percent. That doesn't explain the batting average. Now Shebler is a fly ball hitter. And sometimes fly ball hitters have a lower Babbitt. But he doesn't have an infield fly issue. And he hits the ball with significant authority. He had a 39.4% hard contact rate. In all likelihood, he's probably owed somewhere around 30 points of Babbitt luck. And that would have pushed his average closer to 250-260. And if he did that, suddenly he's looking a lot like Jay Bruce with maybe a few more steals. In addition to that, there's also a clear outlier month for Shebler. He struggled really bad during the month of July. He had a 28% K rate and a 136, 200, 284 triple slash. Uh, after floating around 40% hard contact for the season, Shebler's rate dipped closer to 30% during this month. And there was a little coincidence at the end of the month. He landed on a DL with the shoulder issue and then came off the DL during August with a bang uh, when he was healthy. Now, Shubler's ADP is probably this low because that outfield is a logjam. Uh, you've got Adam Duvall, who's been productive. You've got Billy Hamilton, who's an outstanding defender in center and a speed phenomenon in terms of what he can do on the bases. And then you've got Jesse Winker, who came up last year and hit pretty well during a very limited sample. And he provides something that Shubler and Duvall don't, which is a high average, high OBP sort of player. 
Uh, Shebler and Duvall are very similar, although one's left-handed and one's right-handed. This is going to be a situation where you're going to need to trade. Uh, it's sort of similar to the Barnes-Grundahl situation with the Dodgers. Uh, we would like to be able to keep all these players as potential fantasy assets and see one of these players move on someplace else uh, so that way everybody can get some run. Uh, now there's been rumors about Hamilton. There's been some whispers about um, Duvall as a potential trade candidate. You're rooting for this to work out uh, because Shevler could very easily put up a stat line similar to players that are going 150 to 200 picks earlier and maybe even better if he can avoid the DL. Okay, let's move to pitching. My first starting pitcher is Patrick Corbin with an ADP of 268. I was a big fan of Corbin coming off his Tommy John return season in 2015, but he burnt me and he struggled mightily during that season. It is unclear whether he lost faith in or was simply scared to throw his slider, which is a dominant pitch. Uh, there is some, there are theories out there that state that uh, throwing a slider to a high percentage increases your injury risk. So perhaps that's why he went away from it, and it might explain his struggles. In the second half last year, though, Corbin began to throw the slider more, and the results were very positive. He had a 3.26 ERA. He was inducing grounders at nearly a 50% clip. And most importantly, Corbin was able to limit the hard contact that had haunted him before. The hard contact rate that it was allowed was below 30%. I'm back in on Corbin. I believe he could turn into a top 40 starting pitcher uh, if he commits to the heavy slider usage, which he did in the second half. You know, and I understand going away from it and seeing what you can do without it since it was the pitch that hurt you. But being that Corbin has now done that experiment and struggled and come back to his slider and had success. And I mean, as a, as a team, um, I would think you would encourage him to throw the pitch because if he's going to be useless without it, you'd rather be useful and take the injury risk than be useless and be out of the game. All right. So uh, the next pitcher is Steven Matz, 332. I'm not going to talk much about Steven Matz's 2017. <laughs> it was a complete disaster. He started the year with an injury. He was unable to return until June. And he was a mess when he returned. He allowed 1.62 homers per nine. Strikeouts dried up. He wasn't throwing the Wharton slider. For those of you that don't know, the Wharton slider is a, uh, a slider that the Mets pitchers uh, have thrown in recent years. It is a hard slider. Matt's pretty much removed it from his pitch mix. And then in August, he went back on the DL with an elbow issue uh, and had ulnar nerve surgery. The surgery sounds more serious than it actually is. Matt's is expected to be ready for spring training. Teammate Jacob deGrom actually had it uh, in the 2016-2017 offseason. And returned last year with increased velocity in Ks. I wish I could say his results were better. They were not. But in terms of the process, DeGrom was probably a better pitcher last year. And I'm hoping the same occurs with Mats. Maybe this was the issue. Plus, the Mets have a new manager, Mickey Calloway from Cleveland, uh, who was the pitching coach over there. So maybe a different pitching coach can alter his approach and produce results. Or simply just tell him, listen, you have to throw the slider. That's that's what makes everything else go. Um, so if you're not going to throw it, you're not going to be successful. And, I mean, this was a player that was going as a top 25, top 30 starting pitcher last year. And I know that upside is obscured by last year's results, but he is not even on the radar in a lot of leagues. And he's got significant upside. And he's got a reason why his pitches were bad. Uh, you know, the pitches that weren't the slider. He was hurt. And yeah, he's got significant injury history. But there's no 
risk at this price. So, I mean, I, I just think that this is giving up on upside way too soon and buying into the narrative that all Mets pitchers are outside of Syndergaard and Negrom are terrible and uh, are are going to end up getting hurt. You know, if you want to push the guy down to 332, if he gives you 150 innings of what he was before, you're going to profit huge in today's environment. All right, my third starting pitcher is Trevor Cahill. Uh, I don't have an I, I don't have an ADP on Trevor Cahill because uh, Fantrax he, he's not within the top 100 starting pitchers, so I'm assuming he's outside the top 400. I believe the last pitcher was like 375 or 380. Cahill's a free agent, so he's not guaranteed any sort of role. Last year he started the year with the Padres, and then was traded to the Royals and went belly up. He made just three starts with them before getting hurt and ending up at the bullpen. I think we need to look at Cahill's season as three separate parts. And for our purposes in particular, we only need to examine the first two. To start the year, Cahill was red hot. Through 41 innings and seven starts, Cahill was striking out 11 per nine with a 60% ground ball rate and a 3.27 ERA with even better peripherals. Following his start on May 13th, Cahill was placed on the DL with a back strain. On July 4th, he returned from that injury and pitched for San Diego, and then subsequently Kansas City following the trade until he was returned to the DL. Uh, At that time, he was placed on the DL on August 9th with a shoulder impingement. After he was placed on the DL, Ned Yost, the Kansas City manager, came out and said he was pitching through the issue and it was time to shut it down after some poor outings. I think the issue may have arisen during or before his start on July 21st, which was when he was still with San Diego. In the four starts that occurred between July 21st and August 9th, Cahill threw just 14.2 innings, 15 earn, allowed 15 earned runs, surrendered four homers, and walked 13 batters to just seven Ks. Although the season was marred by injury and a terrible end to the year, the fact remains that Cahill put together fantastic innings early in the season in San Diego before his results completely bottomed out. He's a ground ball pitcher that was striking out well over a batter per inning. That's not the profile of, you know, a number four fantasy starter. That's the profile of a number two, number one type fantasy starter. Because in this day and age where you can get the Ks and you can get the ground balls, that means you're avoiding the homers. If Cahill gets a starting role, he's worth the draft pick to see if the injury caused him to bottom out and to see if he's now healthy and healthy enough to cash in on the upside that he presented to people at the start of the year last year. Okay. My next starting pitcher is Miles Mikolas. There have been some conflicting opinions about Mikolas and how well he'll translate to major league baseball from Japan or whether he'll be the fringe major league pitcher that he was before he went to Japan. Mikolas thrived on ground balls and called strikes when he was in Japan. Despite some skepticism, called strikes are actually a repeatable skill. So with plus command and control, Mikolas should be able to carry that skill with him from Japan. If he does and manages to keep the grounders, he's going to have a really nice floor pitching in a good NL park in St. Louis. In addition to having a high floor, there have been a couple of interesting comps that have been tossed around by the folks over at Fangraphs, uh, specifically Alex Chamberlain and Eno Saris. They compared Michaelis to a high... Uh, to uh, Excuse me. They compared Michaelis's high end to Gio Gonzalez and Jose Quintana. 
despite his impressive numbers, an ideal situation, and those intriguing comps, the market is not buying Michaelis at all. He's going outside the top 100 starting pitchers according to Fantrax's ADP. Again, I don't have an ADP number for him. I'm more than willing to take the shot that he can carry those skills over to the U.S. with him. And, if nothing else, offer a high floor because he's a guy with good control and a ground ball profile. So maybe the K's, uh, you know, fall to a level that's 7-ish. You can live with that as your last starting pitcher, provided he's giving you innings, wins or quality starts, uh, and, you know, not blowing up your ERA and your whip. That's not what this guy is, according to what he's been in the last couple of years. And if he carries over even just those elements of what he did over there, he's going to be just fine in a ballpark like St. Louis. Okay, uh, my next starting pitcher is Dylan Peters. Uh, Again, I don't have an ADP on him. Peters was extremely successful throughout his career in the minor leagues, and he had a cup of coffee last year with the Marlins during September. And in that cup of coffee, he showed some promise, but was a bit uneven, mostly because of control issues, which have never reared their head before. I'm willing to chalk up those control issues to nerves on the big league stage, uh, as it is so far outside of his profile. As is a running theme with my last few selections, Peters is intriguing because he's he's got an extreme ground ball rate. He was often well over 50% in the minors, and during his September cup of coffee, he had a 63% ground ball rate. In today's homer-happy environment, being able to keep the ball on the ground is a major plus. He had a small sample, but his contact management says that he's also not allowing high-quality contact. He induced more weak contact, 22.22%. Soft contact rate. Then he allowed hard contact, which was only at 20%. Here's the list of qualified pitchers. And by qualified, it means that they hit, I believe the number is 150 innings. Regardless, they had a significant sample. With 50% ground ball rate and greater than 20% soft contact allowed. There's two of them. Jimmy Nelson who had a major breakout last year, and Marcus Stroman, who is a pitcher that's going inside the top 40 starting pitchers. Peters has a nasty curveball and a developing change. He pairs those with a fastball that averages 91 from the left side. And that's 91 in September, mind you. So he may come out this year and have more velocity at the beginning of the year because he may have been gassed at the end of last year. To me, this is a player who has been downgraded by scouts due to his size. He's only 5'9". But to me, he reminds me a lot of Sonny Gray, uh, a a smaller pitcher with a very good curveball who came up and there was doubts that he could function or, or continue to start. And Gray was also a pitcher who had a very... Ground ball heavy profile in the minors. And he's in the right ballpark. He's in Miami. In the National League. This is the situation where you want somebody in Miami. Because that ballpark is huge. So on the rare occasion where Peters allows a fly ball. uh, At least at home. It's unlikely to go out. So I, I think that he is a... Very intriguing option for deep leaguers. Okay, in terms of relievers, um, I only have two very quickly. Uh, Ryan Madsen, 404 in terms of ADP. At this moment, Madsen is the setup guy to Sean Doolittle in Washington. And Sean Doolittle has a very lengthy injury track record. There's some speculation that the Nats might be in play for an upgrade at closer or just in the pen in general and push Madsen to the seventh inning role. Or if they sign, uh, you know, a player, a pitcher like Greg Holland uh, to come in and close, 
that that doesn't necessarily mean that Madsen wouldn't be the next guy up. Uh, that may push Doolittle, who's a lefty, to a different role in the bullpen. But at minimum, I think Madsen could be a useful ratio helper uh, with what is an underappreciated path to a, to potential saves. There are lots of other setup guys going before him, and a lot of those pitchers don't have a closer currently in front of them as fragile as Sean Dulo. Uh, my second relief pitcher is Brad Boxberger with an ADP of 375. Uh, he was traded to the Diamondbacks from the Rays this offseason. People may forget, Boxberger has a 41-save season on his ledger. Uh, he returned from injury last year to pitch 29 innings, and they were 29 quality innings. He struck out over 12 batters per nine. Arizona has moved off Fernando Rodney, and the other candidates have other reasons. The other candidates for saves have obvious reasons why Arizona would bypass them and go with Boxberger. Archie Bradley is one of them. Uh, the reason for not giving the saves to Archie Bradley are, are simple. One, he thrived in uh, a, a fireman's role, a, you know, a reliever that can go an inning in two-thirds or so. Um, he produced high-quality results. Why take him out of what he was good at? And two, uh, we saw this with Patantis. The arbitration process favors saves. So Bradley's pre-arb. Why would you start to give him saves now and drive up his cost prematurely when you've acquired a player like Boxberger who is further along in the arbitration process and already has 41 saves to his ledger? You can just roll Boxberger, and Boxberger is a guy who's never done the fireman thing. He's never done an inning in two-thirds on a regular basis like Bradley has. Uh, he simply has gotten three outs. And the other candidate is Hiranu, uh, who was signed by Arizona f- from Japan. And Hiranu, on his face, doesn't have closer MLB-quality closer stuff. Uh, his fastball is in the low 90s. Uh, and in Japan, he only struck out 47 batters last year in 57 innings. Foxberger has shown much more strikeout stuff and has a better major league quality closer profile. So, I mean, you're looking at a potential closer for a team that made the playoffs last year in Brad Boxberger at pick 375. Now, I still think Bradley's the favorite for the role, but there's no reason you can't grab them both and reap the benefits of having both. You know, because Boxberger, even if he's not closing, uh, 12K per nine is going to uh, help you in terms of Ks, and he should help you in terms of your ratios based upon that fact. All right, well, that's going to wrap up my solo show. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, I hope that you guys found some interesting deep sleepers that maybe you weren't considering. We'll be back early next week with the show uh, previewing the first base position. Thanks a lot.